My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we are reading Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. This is on page 1,756 in your pew Bible. 1,756. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living within me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, this is no longer I, it is no longer I who do it, but is sin living within me that does it. And so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see at law at work in my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin that dwells within my fleshly body. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It was just a couple months ago that we passed the the anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death, uh, which I grew up in the generation that um, Kobe was like at his peak when I was in elementary and middle school. And so it was pretty shocking for me. It was like my first big celebrity death, uh, when, when Kobe Bryant passed away last year. And it reminded me of something that happened very early in his career, um, in which he really, he struggled with some serious personal life issues very early in his career. If you remember, um, some terrible accusations leveled against him. Um, and I don't necessarily want to get into all of the ins and outs of that situation, but something that he said in the press conference that he held. Uh, to sort of address this. His wife was right beside him. You know, the reporters from all the different major outlets were in front of him. And he said, at some point during that press conference, he turned to his wife and said, I need to ask my wife for forgiveness for the sin of adultery. That's what he said. Forgiveness for the sin of adultery. And I think that really stuck in my memory because uh, we don't hear the word sin very often outside of church, at least in my experience. Uh, you don't hear it very often in public spaces like press conferences or news releases or presidential speeches very often. We hear a lot about uh, mistakes, a lot of mistakes, wrongdoing, crimes even, errors, offenses. But sin has a very particular flavor to it, doesn't, doesn't it? For Kobe to say, I need to apologize or repent for the sin of adultery, hits us differently than if he would have said the mistake or the crime or the error. Sin is, it's weightier, it's heavier in some way. It's definitely more... It's got a more spiritual angle to it. 
Uh, one of my professors at, at Duke Divinity School put it this way and said that sin is wrongdoing that involves God. There's, there's very little disagreement among the various worldviews and religions and political perspectives uh, about the idea that the world is not as it should be and that humanity is not as it should be. Pretty much everybody agrees on that to some extent. Very few people are out here and they look at the world the way that it is and are like, yeah, this is utopia. This is, this is perfect. Nobody looks at humanity, at the way that we interact with one another and just concludes that we are doing everything right. But there's a lot of disagreement about what the problem is, where we have gone wrong, and what we might do to fix it. You know, for some people, government is too big. Government is evil. That's the source of our problems. Other people, no, it's too small. Government is, is awesome. We need more of it. Maybe we need more and better technology. Technology will solve our problems. No, technology is causing our problems. We need less of it. Children need more discipline. They are naturally bad, and society needs to form them into, uh, into good members of society. No, they actually need less discipline. Children are naturally angels. It's a society that corrupts them. And authors, artists, philosophers, politicians, throughout history, they've tried to articulate and address the reasons for the problems in the world and in the human heart. Sometimes it's called, like, to articulate the human condition is the English major way uh, to refer to this. But we have definitely not reached a consensus on that point. And when the Bible attempts to address these questions, it normally uses a lot of very dramatic-sounding words, words that stick out in your head if you were to hear them in a press conference. Sin, iniquity, transgression. And maybe for this reason, oftentimes, people assume that whatever perspective the Bible has on these questions, whatever it has to contribute to this conversation, is inevitably going to be outdated, if not maybe even totally irrelevant. And that's really unfortunate, because I have personally become convinced that with its dramatic words and its weird stories, the Bible gives us not only a very convincing and convicting portrayal of the problem, where we went wrong, why the world and humanity are so messed up, but it also gives us the only truly satisfying solution. And so we began the season of Lent last Wednesday by smearing ashes on our foreheads, by confessing our sins, and by remembering that we are dust, and it is to dust that we will return. Lent is, a, Lent is a strange liturgical season in a lot of ways. Um, I kind of like Lent, but it's, it's the same part of me that enjoys like really dark and gritty movies and sad books and like the occasional good cry. Because Lent is the time of the year where we Christians take a good, hard look at the problem. Where we try to reacquaint ourselves with the particular language and the particular perspective that the Bible and the Christian faith uses in order to describe the state that we are in. And so this week is the start of a new set of Lenten sermons with the very straightforward title, A Series on Sin, Where Did We Go Wrong? And each week we're going to consider a different word that the Old or the New Testament uses to describe the human condition, the fractured nature of the world, and we are going to hint, but only hint, at how the person of Jesus provides the answer. Uh, if that doesn't sound like a, just a raucous good time to all of y'all, uh, I cannot promise that it will be. Um, but, I, but I do promise that we will, we will party and celebrate all the more once the Easter season rolls back around. And I do hope that you will come along with me on this journey, because I firmly believe that being honest and direct about the problem only increases and multiplies our gratitude at our, and our joy when we are presented with the solution. It's like a cool glass of water at the end of a desert journey. It's like a, just a giant feast at the end of a really long and difficult fast. So let's begin. 
That first word that we are looking at in this series, it's the most well-known word. It's the one that Kobe used to apologize to his wife at that press conference. This week, we are looking at the word that is normally translated in our English Bibles as sin. In the Hebrew, it's the word chata, and the Greek, it's hamartia, but you will not be quizzed on that. No need to remember that. Uh, to help us start to get the sense of this word's meaning and nuances, I'm going to read to you my own translation of Judges chapter 20, verse 16. No need to try to find that. This is what Judges 20, verse 16 says. Among the mighty warriors of Benjamin were 700 archers. So accurate were these archers that they could shoot a single hair off of a person's head without sinning. So accurate were these archers, they could shoot a hair off someone's head without sinning. Doesn't make immediate sense to us, does it? Uh, That's because the biblical word for sin, in its most basic and literal sense, just means to miss. And in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it's used in this literal manner without really any of the theological implications. The archers, they were so good, they could not miss. They hit their target each and every time they took a shot. In the more theological sense, the word sin means to fall short of a standard, to miss in our attempt to live up to the values of God. Because it turns out the, the Bible makes it clear that God, God has values. He has standards. He has opinions, you might say, about human, how humans should interact with one another and about how humans should interact with God. Jesus' family summed up the whole law with just two instructions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's both very straightforward and profoundly difficult. It pushes against our whole nature as human beings, which is often uh, based on self-preservation and self-promotion. And then even these two instructions, right? Even they are sort of interrelated. They're sort of two branches from the same tree. Remember in Genesis 1, God creates humanity in his own image according to his likeness. It's one of the most profound claims that we have in the Bible, that each and every human being is of immeasurable worth because he or she is made in the image and the likeness of the all-powerful God. And so in this way, loving other people is loving God because you are loving something and someone made in his image. And a failure to love other people is also a failure to love God. To sin, then, is to miss this standard, to shoot for it and to come up short. Our Old Testament reading for this morning, the tragic story of Cain and Abel, it contains the very first use of the word chata, of sin, in the Bible. And I think that this difficult and dramatic tale of two brothers helps us more fully flesh out this concept. Uh, Cain and Abel's story, of course, comes right after Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall, how Adam and Eve were tricked by the serpent. They decided that they no longer would accept God's view of good and evil, but instead wanted to define it for themselves. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And so as a result, they're banished from the garden, they're sent east of Eden, and a fiery revolving sword blocks the way back to the tree of life. And so as we head into Genesis 4, as the reader, we are faced with this question. It's sort of hanging over us. What happens next? How is humanity going to act and react outside of the garden? And of course, Genesis 4 is is a tragedy. It's a tragic tale. Humanity falls flat on their face in their first foray out of the garden. At the beginning of the story, Cain and his brother Abel, they both bring offerings before God. God shows favor to Abel's offering, but he does not show favor to Cain's. Now, oftentimes, when I've talked through this story with people, I found that um, at this particular moment, sometimes people get really fixated on the question of fairness. And I would have accounted myself in that group at one point. Uh, Why didn't God like Cain's sacrifice? The text doesn't really give us a good explanation. Uh, You might say that Abel's was was from the firstborn of his cattle, uh, the first 
the best that he had to offer. And I noticed that the NIV sort of pushes you in that direction with the way that they translate it. But I don't, I don't really buy that too much because there's nothing to suggest that, you know, Cain brought all the bruised and, you know, leftover fruit and vegetables. And that kind of offering is welcomed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And so we're still left with that question, sort of, what's the deal? Why is God so harsh to Cain? It doesn't really seem fair. And really, the best offer I can, the best response I can offer to this question is that the the, the story is not super concerned with this. The story, the text itself, is not interested in the question of God's fairness. And there's a reason for that. We 21st century Americans, we live in a culture that is sort of obsessed with fairness, uh, a culture where parents will, you know, insist on a parent and teacher conference in order to complain because they just don't understand why George Hardy was made the second chair in the middle school, you know, band trumpet section, while their own little Jimmy was relegated to third chair, even though Jimmy's been practicing so hard, he's clearly better than George Hardy at this point. It's just not fair. Something needs to be done. We, we live in a culture that's a little obsessed with fairness, and we expect to be told the reasoning behind each and every decision and in a manner that we personally find convincing. Ancient people groups, like the original audience of the Cain and Abel story, they, they just did not have those kind of expectations, especially not with regard to God. The ancient Israels had a very humble view of God as a being whose motivations and actions were just not always perfectly and easily understood by humanity. And God is a being who is under no obligation to fully and unfailingly and constantly explain himself, to justify himself to his own creation. So the story just simply passes by a question that I don't want us to get too tripped up on. The story is much more interested in how Cain is going to react. Faced with an action of God that he does not understand and maybe does not like, what will Cain do? Will he humble himself? Will he relinquish the right to define good and evil on his own with total autonomy? Or will he miss the mark? Will he immediately, in the face of his anger and misunderstanding and hurt, violate the standard to which God is calling him to, to love God and to love his neighbor as himself? And God knows that Cain, and by implication sort of humanity, faces a crossroads here. Next part of the story, he sees Cain's anger and he says to him, and I'm going to go with a little bit more literal translation of the Hebrew here. He says, if you do what is good, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is good, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you and you must master it. The last little bit is really creepy in, in the Hebrew. God describes sin as a, as a beast lying and waiting. The word for, for crouches, its normal use is to describe the body of a predatory animal in the middle of a hunt. And you can picture sort of like a lion and a tiger in that very specific sort of posture that's, that's low to the ground but coiled and ready to pounce. That's the image that God uses to describe sin. And the tragic ending to this tale is that Cain succumbs. He does not do what is good. He kills his brother Abel. Abel's blood cries out to God from the ground. Cain is banished, sent even further east, further away from the Garden of Eden. It's a difficult story. And there are two main things that I think we can learn about sin from this story that I want us to take with us. The first one is that at least in some sense, sin is a wrong choice. Sin is when we have an opportunity to love God by loving our neighbors and we don't. We miss. We fall short of the standard. We had the chance to do well, to do what is good and to do what is right, but we did not take that chance. Instead, we acted on our anger, on our jealousy, on that universal human tendency to turn inward. Now, in our, in our own lives, I hope and I pray fervently that these wrong choices would not take as dramatic and extreme a form as they do in the story of Cain and Abel. 
But of course, Jesus himself made sure that we would never be able to let ourselves off the hook when in the Gospel of Matthew, he doubles down and says, truly I say to you, the one who hates his brother or sister is guilty of murder in your hearts. And so of course, not only do, does that make it applicable to our own situations and lives, but we have only to look at the news and, and see the violent tendencies of humanity. They've only grown worse since Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. The crossroad that Cain faces in Genesis 4 is one that we all face throughout our lives, and it's one that you know groups of people, nation states, countries face throughout history. I think it's fair to hear God's instructions to Cain echoing throughout history. Do what is good. So that's the first thing we should take away. Sin, at least in some sense, is a wrong choice. But secondly, sin is also an external thing. It is not just a choice, not just a crossroads. It's also something that has its own existence apart from us. In Genesis 4, God describes this facet of sin as a beast, as a monster lying in wait. Its desire is for us. It wants to consume us. Our New Testament reading from today more fully fleshes out this element of sin. In Romans 7, Paul is wrestling with an experience that we have all had. Uh, He knows what is good. He knows what he should do to love God and to love neighbor, and yet so often he simply does not do it. He does not do the thing that he wants to do. And this is understandably perplexing, because in in the vast majority of cases, we do what we want to do. If I want to have pizza rather than nachos for dinner, then I'm going to have pizza. If I want to play a video game instead of watch television, then I am going to play a video game. It just makes sense. And Paul is bewildered by the fact that when it comes to certain things, like obeying God's command, he knows what to do, what he should do, and he sincerely and genuinely wants to do it, and yet he does the opposite. What exactly is going on here? Paul comes to a very strange, again sort of creepy, conclusion in Romans chapter 7, verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, It is no longer I that do it, but sin that is dwelling within me. That should maybe give you like goosebumps. Paul has discovered a sinister force, a beast lurking, crouching within his own soul. Sin is something that is not Paul, but dwells within Paul and makes Paul do things that he doesn't want to do. This is, this is super creepy and weird. And so the Bible suggests that sin is both a matter of an individual choosing to do what is right and sin is an external force. It's a beast that wants to consume us and make us do things that we don't want to do. Now, I hope that it's already becoming clear just how relevant the Bible's description of these things are is to our modern life and our modern world because we have actually stumbled upon something that is a very hot and controversial topic in our own modern conversations in our own modern world. Today, it's normally framed as something like this. Are bad choices, are they the responsibility of the individual person or are they determined by external factors? Let's get really concrete. I want you to imagine two people, person A, person B. Person A gets good grades in high school, goes to college, gets married, and just generally lives a healthy, happy, positive life until he or she dies in peace. That's person A. Now imagine person B. Person B gets sucked into drugs in high school. He commits a violent crime in his early 20s, and then he spends the rest of his adult life in and out of prison. Now, what is the difference between person A and person B? Why did their life have such drastically different outcomes? 
On one end of the spectrum, we have some people that want to say the difference between person A and person B is that person A made all the right choices. When they were at a crossroads, do what is good or not to do what is good. They chose the right path and therefore things went better for them. Person B missed the mark. They chose poorly again and again and again and thus they bore the consequences. That's one end of the spectrum. The other school of thought, the other side, might say the difference between person A and person B is almost entirely or maybe even entirely their external circumstances. Because when we look at their personal profiles, we find that person A had a loving family and food on the table each and every night, while person B had a brutal family history of, of abuse and poverty and tragedy that was crouching at his door like a hungry beast, waiting for an opportunity for him to slip up to entrap him and devour him. He could not be ex expected to just rise above those circumstances with no support system, with, with generations of trauma hovering over him day and night. The brokenness of the world and his own life circumstances ate him alive, and he can't be blamed for that. Two different views. One, putting the emphasis on the individual choice, do what is good. The other, putting the emphasis on external factors, the beast crouching at the door. Christianity in the Bible, our faith tradition, describes sin in such a way that this is a both and sort of situation. We are both presented with choices to do what is good or to not do what is good. Those choices are real and they imply responsibility. But simultaneously, sin, the impulse towards destruction and hurt, it is alive and it's active and it's external. It's a force that can entrap us. It can plague families and cultures and structures and societies for generations. And ultimately, it must be dealt with by something outside of ourselves. Now, we're about to hint at Easter, like I promised that we would, but before we do that, I'm going to try something somewhat difficult, but it's sort of, I think it's kind of the pastor's job at Lent. I want to try to convince you that this picture of sin that we fleshed out this morning, it's in some ways actually good news for us, or at the very least, it's an example of how the Bible and Christianity has something so profound and compelling to say about the brokenness of the world and about the human condition. So here we go. You are inevitably going to run into serious problems if you are determined to locate human failure in either fully the individual's heart or fully in something external, like, their circum like circumstances or an evil person or structure or evil force. Because on the one hand, if you believe that doing what is right is nothing but a personal choice, that it's simply a matter of willpower and effort and doing the right thing, pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, so to speak, then first of all, you will end up flattening and ignoring the experience of other people who may have had so much set up against him, them. The kid who grew up without parents in a stable home life who ends, up who ends up perpetuating cycles of abuse. Or the man or the woman who faced demons, figurative or literal, in a way that you may never, never had to. You will not have a way of empathizing with them in a way that a Christian should. And... When you inevitably slip up, when you fail, when you miss the mark, you will have nowhere to go but self-blame and maybe even self-hatred because it was up to you. You could have done what was right, but you didn't. On the other hand, if you fall completely on the other side of the spectrum, if you believe that our actions are 100% determined by external factors, by our society, by the environment, by the circumstances that you were born into, by the forces of evil, by Satan himself, to the extent that the individual person, maybe you even, can't be said to bear any responsibility at all. If that's where you land, then you, won't, you just won't have any way to talk about morality or consequences in a way that makes sense. You won't be able to encourage people to be better or to justly 
critique people who refuse to because everything is just externally determined. The Bible refuses to come down fully in one camp or the other. Sin has both of these qualities. It is the failure of the individual to do the right thing. It is also an external force that corrupts and imprisons. And because the Bible describes sin in both of these ways, we Christians have something so essential, so, something so true to offer to these kind of conversations in the world, to talk about difficult circumstances in a very nuanced and compassionate way. Because on the one hand, we can call people to live better lives, more godly lives, while acknowledging that some people face different and more extreme challenges than others. We can insist both that the Christian resist evil and the evil one with all of their strength, and we can compassionately mourn when one of our brothers or sisters succumbs. Okay, let's peek at Easter. And the way that I want to do that, like, what do we need? Based on what sin is, as we've described it this morning, what would a solution look like? What can fix this problem? Well, firstly, we need someone who can shoot the hair off the head of a person from 100 meters away without ever missing. Someone who can navigate human life, who can face that crossroads that Cain was presented with, do good or do not do good, and to pick the right path 100% of the time. We need someone without sin. And secondly, we need someone who can slay the beast that's crouching at the door, who has the power and the authority to conquer the spiritual forces of wickedness, who can slay the demons in our own hearts and our own minds and out in the world. We're going to finish this morning simply by reading a series of passages from the New Testament. And I'm not going to comment on them or anything, so you'll have to pay really close attention. The first one is 1 Peter 2, chapter 22 through 24. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. The second comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And then I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, and they're riding on white horses. They're dressed in fine linens, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against this rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, that false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. And the two of them were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Finally, I want to read the last bit of our New Testament reading from Romans 7 again. This time with the crucial final verse in place. This is Romans 7 verse 21. So I find this law to be at work. Though I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin that works within me. 
wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.